Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, thanks for joining us for this powerful narrative session where we get to learn how an inspiring leader used his position of power and privilege to make our field a better place. Dr. Bob Harrington. And we get to do so with two of our stellar fit ambassadors, Dr. Pablo Sanchez from Stanford University and Dr. Christine Shen from Scripps Clinic. Be sure to stick around for the end of the episode for an important message from Dr. Jamal Rana, the president of the California ACC chapter. We would like to thank Drs. Katie Berlacher and Noshin Riza for their mentorship in this narratives project, as well as Dr. Pamela Douglas for inspiring us to create the narrative series in the first place. Remember, everyone, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. You can claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description, and relevant speaker disclosures and amazing show notes are available on the episode show page. If you find the show helpful, please do help others find the show by rating and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app. And now, friends, let's get nerdy. Hey, Cardi Nerds, welcome back for a very special discussion today as part of the Pennsylvania ACC and Cardi Nerds Narratives and Cardiology series designed to promote diversity and inclusion in cardiology because our differences make us stronger. As you know, for this series, we invite inspiring experts to tell us about their professional areas of passion and their personal journeys. And today we get to fly to my home state of California to learn from an inspiring leader in our field, Dr. Bob Harrington. To plan this discussion, it was such a delight to work with two of our CardioNerds ambassadors, Dr. Pablo Sanchez and Dr. Christine Shen, representing Stanford University and Scripps Clinic, respectively. And as a reminder, these programs have joined our Bernadine Healy Honor Roll Program because they support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. Hey, Dan, as Air Force CardioNerds hits the tarmac at San Jose Airport, what's the weather like tonight? Mm-hmm. I'm it is a typical gorgeous California Bay Area day. It is sunny with a high of 69 and a low of 51. So while we're cruising on in for a beautiful landing, Pablo and Christine, may you introduce yourselves to our great audience today. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Christine Shen. I'm a second year general cardiology fellow at Scripps Clinic. I was born and raised in California, and I'm hoping to do an interventional. Hey, everyone. Very happy to be here. My name is Pablo Sanchez. I am one of the 30-year cardiology fellows at Stanford and one of the chief fellows there. I am originally from Venezuela, grew up in Arizona, was in residency in Boston, and now in sunny California for fellowship. And so, so excited to, to be here. So everybody, we continue our phenomenal lineup of speakers for these narrative series with someone who I think needs little in the way of introduction. And we have Dr. Harrington in the house. Dr. Harrington, um, cue the applause. There's no applause button here. No. Okay. So Dr. Dr. Harrington is the chair of the Department of Medicine at Stanford University. And he's also the immediate past president of the American Heart Association. He served from 2019 until 2020. But let's start a little bit further back. He's a native of Massachusetts, and he received this medical degree from Tufts University and completed internal medicine residency and chief residency at the University of Massachusetts. He then headed to Duke, where he trained in uh, general and interventional cardiology. And additionally, he trained in clinical research as part of the Duke Data Bank Cardiovascular Disease, which was the precursor to today's DCRI. Uh, he then joined faculty at Duke in 1993. And with voracious interests, he became involved in various trials, in- including Gusta. He eventually became the director of the DCRI, only the second person to hold the position, and fostered a highly integrated network of clinical trials and a registry that is known the world over. In 2012, he was recruited to Stanford University to become the chair of medicine at a time where Stanford was a burgeoning healthcare and trying to build a clinical research footprint. He's a remarkable, remarkable researcher and academician with over 600 manuscripts, reviews, book chapters. He's a deputy editor or editorial board member in multiple journals, and the accolades just go on and on, and deservedly so. But I think on a separate ground and, and, and deserving of its own section is Dr. Hankton's energy, his charisma, his leadership qualities. I think that there isn't a soul that feels like they haven't known Dr. Hankton for years when they speak to him for the first time. 
This is the quality tied to his unflinching drive to highlight the underpinnings of disparities in healthcare for patients, for providers, for researchers, and for clinicians, and to also tackle solutions. This made him a phenomenal, influential AHA president, a chair of medicine, and a leader. It's why we've been looking forward to having this discussion for such a long time. Dr. Harrington, thank you very much for coming and welcome to CardioNerds. Well, it's a real privilege to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with the audience that you have, and I'm very impressed by what you've created. And uh, just thank you for having me. I'm happy to chat in whatever direction you'd like to go. So Dr. Harrington, as you know, the Cardio Nerds narrative series is aimed at highlighting the power that a diverse background in gender, race, and upbringing provides to cardiovascular medicine. This true and simple principle though self-evident to us, is one that has eluded modern medicine for centuries. The remedy to the clear disparities in representation requires a clear eye and drive. During your tenure as AHA president, you made it a point to dispel expert panels made up of only males, aka mannels. Why did you decide to tackle this? And why is it important in particular for men to be part of this effort? So there's a series of questions wrapped up in that, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you some perspective. First, from sort of like I usually talk, I start in the big picture, then go down to the, the details. And on the big picture, you're absolutely right that we know that people get better care from a diverse care team. We know that research is better, science is better when there's a diverse group of individuals contributing their expertise and their background And so that's what we all strive for. Second, one of the things I learned through my journey through the Heart Association leadership is that the Heart Association gives you a big pulpit. There's 40 million individuals who count themselves as AHA volunteers in some way, the people that do Jump Rope for Heart and Kids Heart Challenge and Heart Balls and Heart Walks and all of that. That adds up to 40 million people. There's 40,000 science volunteers who, like all of us, who contribute our time and energy to the AHA. And because of that, you have a big platform. And one of the biggest platforms you have is that you get to speak on behalf of the organization in a way that you can't if you're not an officer of the organization. Because when the president of the organization speaks, he or she represents the AHA. And I had a remarkable meeting with two people before I became the president. One was uh, a guy by the name of Jamie Aaron, who is a communication specialist writer for uh, the Heart Association. He writes all the profiles on the presidents, the officers, the board chairs, etc. Jamie and I hit it off well because he used to be a beat writer for the Texas Rangers in baseball. And so some of you may know that I'm a passionate baseball fan. And uh, so Jamie and I hit it off well. And he came to my office here at Stanford to visit me. And he said, you know, Bob, I've read all about you. I've looked you up on the web and I don't know anything about you and nobody knows anything about you. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? I was like, a lot of stuff about me on the web. Yeah. He said, it's all about science and medicine and clinical research. So we don't know about you. And one of the roles that you can play as the AHA president is to tell people your story and have them learn from that. And he said, you know, I'm a baseball writer. I think you learn from stories. So that got me thinking. And Jamie and I then spent several hours together talking. And he wrote a story about me where I told him things I had not told people that made it there. It wasn't that they were secret, but they had not made their way into the public realm. So I told him a bunch of stuff about my my journey. And um, that was the first person. The second person was uh, Rosemary Robertson. Rose was the longstanding chief medical officer and chief science officer of the AHA. And one of her duties for a couple of decades, she's also a former AHA president, is that she helps the president craft his or her message in the president's speech. And she's done this with a lot of people and she has an ear for what the audience wants. She has an ear for what the AHA wants to put forward. And she's just really good at that mentoring part of pulling it out of you. And so she said to me, Bob, I've read your CV. She said, I've known you for years. What's important to you? And so then that embarked on a many month journey of, of being able to put into words what was important to me. And 
the theme that I wanted to build my presidency around and then build a lot of other ideas around was this notion that evidence matters. I'm a, I'm a clinical researcher. I care deeply about data and evidence and evidence used to guide practice. But that then made me really push into a direction of, well, it's not just the evidence, it's the people who produce the evidence. It's the people who write about the evidence, talk about the evidence. And I told her that that was very important to me. Training was very important to me. We talked about my life at the DCRI and my life at Stanford with regard to training. And one of the things that I told her I wanted to focus on for the next part of my career was was gender equity in cardiovascular medicine and science. And the notion that my generation had failed, that there are 20%, roughly 15% of American cardiologists are women. The field, Dr. Shen, that you're going to go into, interventional cardiology is less than 10% women. And I became convinced that if I could use the pulpit of the AHA to talk about these things, that if a senior male cardiovascular leader would talk about these things, maybe it would matter. And you know, having been in leadership for a while, I realized that sometimes you can say things and it happens. Not always, but sometimes. And so I went to the program directors for the AJ and I said, I don't want to have any men only panels because I'm going to talk about that. At And I mean, you would not believe the amount of work that took to, because if like somebody drops off and you're going to add somebody, he's got to make sure that there's so what for me that was, was a frame shift. Look, if I talk about this and people do it. So I, may, I, I decided that I would make a public commitment. I had been sort of doing it for years, but I made a public commitment that I would no longer accept invitations to a meeting where there were only going to be men on the panel. And instead, what I would do and what I still do, you'd be amazed at how often this still happens. I write a letter and I say, or an email, and I say, look, I note that there's only men on this panel. I've made a public commitment to not support mantles. And here's five names of women who would be as good, probably better than me at serving this role. And I would advise you to take that into consideration. And I suspect any of them would welcome this opportunity. Thank you very much. And so, yeah, that's how it came about. That's what I do. And I realized that if senior men don't change the field, it's not going to change because we're, we have all the power positions in American cardiology, not all of them, but a lot of them. And it ha- we have to change it. And I can go into more detail than that if you like, but that's, that's my starting position. That's great. Yeah. Dr. Harrington, that's, that's a beautiful way to weave you know, your drive for research and, and evidence and dovetailing that into the, the message of gender equity and inclusion. You know, I was there during your AHA speech in 2019 in the room where it happened, as you, as you said during that speech. And your statement was a powerful one, but I think even more powerful was the change that was evident to the people that were there in the conference. I mean, noticing that there were no manos was, was a really powerful tone that was said throughout the whole conference. And I don't think that message was lost on anybody that was there, that the president of the AHA was shining a bright light on this enormous issue, I think carried a lot, a lot of weight. But my next question is, you know, what happens next in potentiating the gears of change? Because I imagine that you can end up meeting a lot of resistance from people that either, you know, don't, don't believe that this is an issue or, or don't recognize it as such. So what happens then? Well, so this wasn't like a one and done sort of thing that I've been, I've remained committed. The HA has remained committed that we created an entity within the HA called Go Red for Women in Medicine and Science. And it builds on our Go Red campaign. You'll notice on my lapel is the red dress, which is the the logo or the symbol, if you will, of our 20 plus year commitment to, as an organization, to understanding the issues of heart disease in women. I now wear the pin almost every day, either on my suit coat or on my white coat, because I want people to ask me about it and because I want to talk about it. And what the AHA has done is expanded Go Red from a campaign to just understand the disease to also understand the people who study the disease and the people who are going to make great clinical contributions, science contributions, and that are women. And so the AHA has now publicly committed to making sure that all of our, we're moving towards 50% representation in all of our committee chairs. 
we're moving to equal representation in our grant reviewers. Guess what? If your grant is being reviewed, you're more likely to get a good review if you have a diverse group of reviewers. Boy, that's shocking. And and so the AHA is committed to doing that. We measure it, we report it, and we make it public. We're very transparent about it. So we're doing all of those things. I just saw all the data a couple of weeks ago on where we are with regard to our research grants. We're very purposeful in thinking about that. So I think that, you know, that is something that I was very involved with while I was the president, while I was an officer, and that I continue to be very, very engaged with, with the organization. So that part's all good. Then there's also a bunch of stuff that we're doing here, Dr. Sanchez, as you know well, at Stanford, you know, whether it's compensation issues, whether it's leadership issues. If you look at my leadership team in the Department of Medicine, it's a very diverse leadership team. And that's very purposeful. That's very intentional. And so my view is that if if I have the bully pulpit, why not use it for doing some good things? But you're right. I mean, people, including people I count as friends, push back. Like, why, you know, what, what's all this stuff? People really push back. And I don't mean any offense to my male colleagues on the on the phone here, but you know, 50% of medicine residents are women. Actually, it's like 48, 49%, about 52% of women medical students. So it's, but it's roughly 50-50, but yet it had been as low as 15% women fellows. Now it's as high as I think 23% or so, 24% of most recently. But that means that you start with a pool of 50 and one group provides 75 to 80% of the fellows and one group provides 20% of the fellows. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that you're missing talent. You're missing talent of those women who have decided not to go into cardiology. And uh, that bothers me greatly. And so I say to a lot of my senior male colleagues that if you don't care about equity, that's a separate conversation we should have. But don't you care about the health of our specialty? And don't you want the very best people going into it? You're leaving talent on the table. And so that's what I, that's how I think about it. And, uh, and I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And spend a lot of energy thinking about it. And as a department, we spend a lot of resources investing in it. Yeah, Dr. Harrington, I'm just in awe of how deliberate you've been with these efforts. And I want to take a minute to reflect on when you were talking about disposing of mantles and, and how you said, you, in your words, you took a public position against mantles. And in, you know, what it reminded me of in a, in a much smaller way is you know during the COVID era last year when it was our first virtual recruitment cycle for fellowship programs. That's when we paired up with Dr. Nasheen Riza and the ACC to essentially bring out these cardiac case reports and hosting cardiology fellowship training programs to invite their fellows, teach about an awesome case, talk about their program, have their program directly show pride in the program and why their training is excellent. And that's actually some of the best products of that is the network that we now enjoy, like, you know, people like Pablo and Christine. It's, it's one of the best parts of our cardiac hands down for us. But, you know, as we invited programs to nominate three, sometimes four fellows to represent the program on cardiac nerds, we weren't sure how to go about making it representative. And we weren't sure, you know, like for Dan and myself, you know, two nerdy fellows, like what power we had or, or what right we had to ask program directors, you know, to, who they wanted to represent their programs. And, and, and I have to say that we were very timid about that in the beginning, but it was our residency program director, Dr. Sanjay Desai, who gave us the license and said, hey, listen, you guys, like this is your platform. And if you're not going to drive this, nobody else will. And it was really his encouragement that empowered us to ask program directors to be very deliberate about who they selected to represent the programs. And, you know, for the most part, we were successful, not always, but, you know, that commitment from us, from our part, has only grown as we've had these narratives and cardiology discussions and following the coattails of people like yourself and Dr. Douglas and others who have supported us in the series. Um, and actually, for all of our guests on Cardiators, we asked them to fill out a guest form. And I was just looking today, Dan, so actually, of all the Cardiators guests we've had so far, now right now it's 98 from when we started having the form filled out. It's 51% women and uh, 49% men. So we're definitely more representative of residents than fellows. But I, I want to I wanna go back to what you were talking about. You know, the nearly uh, 50% of residents are women, but less than a quarter of cardiology fellowship 
are women. And, and some refer to this as the residency to fellowship cliff. And we talk about why that's bad and what benefits we gain from having a more representative and a more inclusive field, both to science, to clinical care and innovation and excellence. Uh, what do you think are the key drivers for this disparity and, and why, you know, why, why is this the case right now? Like, what can we do better? Well, you know, there may be other people, women in particular, who would be better suited to answer this question than me. But I'll give you some of my observations, because certainly the science, I think we'd all agree we're a biased group here, but we would all agree that the science of cardiovascular medicine is fascinating and the clinical challenges are fascinating. And, you know, it's a field where you can do highly cognitive things and highly procedural things in the same day. That's like, wow, that's stimulating and that's interesting you save lives. You know, one of the things I'm I'm an interventionalist, or as I like to say, I'm a reformed interventionalist since I no longer do intervention. What could be better? I still look at cat films when I'm making rounds with the residents and I say, oh my God, how much fun is this to like open up an occluded artery in the middle of the night and save somebody's life? Like what, why would you possibly want to do anything else? And, And I really mean that. I mean, it's like, how great is that? Getting somebody ready for heart transplant and then watching them get a new lease on life. Wow. What could be better than that? So I think that our field is amazing and the science is amazing and what you can do for patients is amazing. And if you're interested in research, only about a quarter of what we do is supported by a high level of evidence. So there's tons of stuff left to do. There's like tons of questions left to answer. So why would you not want to be a cardiologist? And uh, so then you start to say, well, why is that? Well, frankly, maybe the field is not so friendly to women. And maybe there's some things that go on that are not just inappropriate, but are wrong and, and have created an environment that, that, our, that our women colleagues might not want to participate in. And that bothers me greatly because I love the specialty. I really do love the specialty. And, uh, and it's my first identity. Like if you ask me, Bob, what do you do? You know, well, usually I say, ah, you know, I work at Stanford. Oh, what do you do at Stanford? Well, you know, I'm a doctor. It, you know, I, I never tell somebody I'm like the chair of medicine, like what a boring thing that is. But like you say, oh, I'm a heart doctor. Then people are like, oh, that's pretty cool. Let's talk about that. So my core identity is as a cardiologist and it, it depresses me sometimes that people don't want to go into cardiology. And what have I done to do that, to create that environment? And, and I really feel this obligation at my stage of career to see how we can change it. Because I think it's going to change in two directions. It's going to change from the stuff that you are doing, which is I call bottom up, from people who are entering the profession and who are demanding that it be different. That's awesome. And that's what that's, what, that's going to help change. But it has to also be top down where people like me who have influence over authority, man, I hire people. What could be more influential than that? I put people in roles of leadership. I give people grants. Well, I don't give them grants, but I vote for them to get grants. And I mean, that's like, like big stuff. And there's a bunch of people like me. Many of them are men. Most of them are men. They should care about this. And uh, you know what? I can stand on the stage and debate people about it because- I'm not going to feel bad about it. I'm not going to feel bad calling people out. You know, what what are they going to do? Like, tell me to go home, not invite me to the next meeting. Good. So, no, I feel very, I feel very responsible. You've obviously read some of my bio because you know some of the stuff about me, but I went to a small liberal arts Jesuit college. And, you know, the motto of the Jesuits is men and women for others. And uh, Tony Fauci is a Holy Cross grad. And I don't know many people who live a life more for others than he does. And so that's what I aspire to, to live my life for others and to make decisions that are going to help other people. And I think that's what I do. And I feel like I have a responsibility because I've, what's the other saying, you know, to those who have been given much, much is expected. And that's what people like me should do. Yes, that's why I do it. And yeah, I take grief, take grief all the time. But you know what? So what? My my good friend, Rob Califf, I don't know what kind of audience you have out there, but I'll say it. My good friend, Rob Califf, likes to say, if you're not pissing somebody off, you're probably not doing anything interesting. And I believe that. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Harrington. And yeah, well, right now I'm trying to not piss anybody off as a, as a fellow. 
But that's we'll probably that. a good thing. <laughs> In my position, let me do the pissing off. Right, right. You know, as cardiologists, we cannot agree with you more about how exciting the field of cardiology and cardiovascular medicine is. And mentorship and sponsorship can be important tools to change our field into a friendly field, as you talked about earlier. So where do you see mentorship and sponsorship fitting into the process? And how are they ways of being effective in terms of driving diversity and inclusivity into our field and making cardiology a really wholesome, fun place to be? I once took a survey of my former research group of the faculty, and I asked them, list the top three or four things you need to be successful as a young investigator and then as a senior investigator. When you went to young investigator, it was mentorship, 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 mentorship. As you went to a senior investigator, it was mentorship, mentorship. So the point is, we all need mentors and we need mentor teams. And you've, you've raised another point, which is sponsorship. I think that there are three key things, right? There's mentorship, there's sponsorship, there's allyship. And I like to think, I've said this in other venues, I'm a mentor to a few people. I'm a sponsor of many, but I'm an ally of all. And I will help. I will use my influence to, to help other people. Now, just because of my time commitments, I, I directly, because I take the mentorship role seriously. So if I'm going to serve as somebody's primary mentor, I'm going to like spend time doing that. Sponsorship is, you know, there's, you can sponsor more people, but allyship, I can be supportive through allyship and, and trying to make sure. And I think that my daily So the things that I do to try to make a better environment for people in our department at Stanford is part of my role as an ally, is to make it, make us better at what we do. Yeah, Dr. Harrington, a mentor to, I don't think I had heard that uh, before, a mentor to some, a sponsor to many and an ally to all. What a phenomenal concept to to live by, particularly for someone in your position that has the power to to mentor so many, sponsor and and be an ally to so many. That's such a powerful thing to say. Uh, and to live by, you know, it also helps to put things into perspective to consider how you got here. We read about you and how you worked in roofing with your grandfather, Arthur Gotti, when you were young. And that, you know, also that only at the age of six, it was just you, your mother and your sister alone in a home in Somerville, that your mother suffered a cardiac arrest when she was just eight to 42. And, you know, you had a really trying childhood and upbringing. So we wanted to ask you how these times in your life shape your interest in medicine and, and research. So you did do your reading. And uh, um, yeah, that story was written by Jamie Aaron because he said, Bob, nobody knows anything about you. And so it was my experience with Jamie, my experience with Rose, my experience with the AHA that allowed me to tell my story, if you will, as an example, perhaps that would be helpful to others. And you, you this group, here, all of you have embraced this notion of narrative. And uh, Pablo, you know that my office is next door to Abraham Verghese, who really believes in the power of narrative. And Abraham has also been very helpful to me as I think about my own story. But I told my story because people wonder, like, well, how do people get to where they are? And I had a really interesting response to my, my president's speech at the AHA that year in 2019, when a very well-known physician wrote me a note and he said, and I've known him for years. He said, Bob, I want to apologize to you. And I said, what do you want to apologize? You know, it's this email thing. I said, what do you want to apologize for? He said, I made assumptions about you because you're white, you're older man, that you were somebody who came from a background of privilege. And he said, I was so wrong. That was a good lesson for me. Because when you look at me, I'm like a white middle-aged guy, right? Emphasis on the middle age, not old. And, uh, you know, and what I try to explain to people is, look, we all have a story and don't judge people until you actually know what their story is. And I applaud what you're doing because you're trying to tell people stories so that people can understand where you might have come from, because that influences where you where you got to where you got. And for me, my story is about people helping me and uh, in providing me mentorship, sponsorship, allyship all along the way. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, and I, and, and I would say, yeah, I had an interesting upbringing. I mean, I grew up in inner city Boston and people have heard me tell the story that 
you know your way around the Boston scene and you know the story of Whitey Bulger and the Winter Hill Gang, I grew up in Winter Hill. And, you know, today you'd say, well, that was probably a tough neighborhood. Yeah, at the time, though, I was a kid. I thought it was a great neighborhood. You just learn certain things when you grow up in a neighborhood like that. But I had an amazing support system. Yeah, I grew up with a single mother and a sister. But we lived next door to my grandparents. My grandfather, who I would tell people, he had a seventh or eighth grade education, but he's one of the smartest men I knew. You know, he was my father figure and he looked after me and taught me a lot of things, including my my love for baseball. I still go to Fenway Park. And when I walk up, for those of you who know Boston, I walk up from the T-Station in Kenmore Square. And I just think of, you know, going there as a little kid because I've been going to Red Sox games since I was seven years old. So all that stuff helps form who you are. I'm sure there's something deep in my psyche that my mother dying of cardiac arrest becomes the disease that I study. Uh, you know, as, as you know, I'm mostly interested in acute ischemic heart disease. I've done other things, but that, that remains my primary clinical and academic interest. And I'm sure there's something deep-seated about that as to why I chose it. But yeah, that's, that's, that's some of the background. Dr. Harrington, thank you so much for sharing those personal stories with us. You've been such a strong ally for women and underrepresented minorities and a driver for change. What do you think it is about you, your position of power and privilege that motivates you? Because not everyone has used their stage to impact such positive change. I, I gave a talk at the ACC a number of years ago. It was on sort of academic medicine, and my topic was compensation and compensation in academic medicine, a topic probably near and dear to all our hearts on the screen here. And we had just been through a planning process in the department here at Stanford to change our compensation scheme, to be more formulaic, to be more transparent, with really a goal of making it more equitable. And so I gave that presentation. Then the presentation, a woman came up to me who I had met but didn't know, Claire Duvenet. Claire is a, an interventional cardiologist at University of Michigan. And she was at the time the chair of the Women in Cardiology Leadership Group. And she said, you know, that was terrific to talk about this, but do you actually want to do something about it? And she invited me to serve on the Women in Cardiology Leadership Group. There were no men on that group. And she said, we're only going to get things like compensation equity in cardiology if senior men care about it. She said, we, we need your help. We need senior men to talk about this stuff, to be willing to talk about it. And so that started for me. Uh, I was on the Women in Cardiology Leadership Group for six years for the ACC, and I was the only man on it. And my women colleagues taught me an enormous amount. They talked to me about stories where they were treated very unfairly. They talked to me about stories where they or colleagues or trainees were not just treated unfairly, but were treated wrongly and, and badly. And it was a really profound experience for me to hear these stories on a regular basis in what they considered a safe space. It was a group of colleagues who were having conversations. And so I really threw that as well. And I thank Claire all the time when I see her uh, that, you know, this, this is important. And, you know, I, I have authority. Why don't I use some of it? Why don't I write about it? Why don't I speak about it? And so I do. And, you know, I, I like to write. I'm not afraid to take a provocative position. You'll note when you hear me speak, usually I might speak firmly, but I never speak uncivilly. I never am disrespectful. And I, but I'll argue with you and tell you I, that you're wrong and that I disagree with you, but I'll do it very respectfully. Clyde Yancey, who I think you probably all know, is Clyde and I have done a series of podcasts on civility in professional discourse. And yeah, for better or worse, I'm somebody who feels like, okay, I'm willing to do it, so I'll do it. I'm willing to say that, so I'll say it. I'm willing to to be at the front and because uh, it's important. You know, then there's the other personal things, right? That I'm Pablo, I'm sure you heard when you were sitting at listening to that talk that I'm the product of a single mother. I have a sister. I have four daughters, a wife, a professional wife who runs the master's degree in physician assistant studies here in Stanford. And so a professional accomplished woman as a wife. My daughters are all accomplished professionals. 
And, uh, you know, I think that also influences me because I want the world to be the kind of place where they can thrive. And that all plays into, you know, there's this hashtag on Twitter, it's hashtag girl dad. You know, Sunil Rao from Duke uses it a lot. That's, I think, where I stole it from. And uh, I'm a girl dad, and I'm proud of that. I can braid hair and throw a baseball with them. They'll tell you I braid hair badly, but but I can do it. And and I'm very comfortable with women. I was raised by women. I lived, I've only lived with women, except for, you know, some roommates in college and medical school. I've only lived with women. You know, uh, I, I'm very much a boy dad. I've got three young boys at home. So I, I haven't learned how to braid here, but, you know, growing up, my, my heroes very much were my mom and my two older sisters who are all medical professionals and they really, you know, paved the way for me. So mm-hmm. uh, in that way, I can, I think many of us can relate. And I remember we were lucky to have Dr. Clyde Yancey as part of this uh, very series to represent the Illinois chapter. And he told us about the three C's that he lives by. And I wrote them right on top of my desk. That I look at it every day, the civility compassion and competency. And I, I think that really is a nice triad for- And he's another girl dad. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> you know, he, he's another girl dad with a remarkable story. And uh, Clyde is uh, one of my closest friends in cardiology. He's a, uh, he's a really, you know, the phrase good man doesn't do him justice. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to actually bring out a question from Dr. Arpan Gosal who is an internal medicine resident at Ansan and Morningstar. And, you know, she actually reached out to me a while back, just seeking advice and, and perspective on applying for cardiology fellowship. So, uh, Christine, maybe you could read your question out. Absolutely. So the question is, one of the major issues is the need for effective mentorship. How would you suggest reaching out to senior faculty asking for mentorship? I believe there is a lot of hesitancy among new women trainees to ask directly for mentorship. What would you suggest to those who are in that situation early in their careers seeking mentors? So it's a, it's a common question and it's an important question. And because, as I said, if you think about the keys to success, I mean, I can tell you, you know, mentors all along the way for me, many of whom remain mentors to this day. It's really important. A couple things, one of which is that you should think about a mentorship team because it's unusual to have all the things you you need in a professional mentor in one person. It's very unusual. You need to have somebody who has content knowledge. So for you, Dr. Jen, if that's a, you know, an interventional cardiologist or somebody interested in coronary disease, or if you're interested in structure, somebody's interested in structural disease, doesn't have to actually be an interventionalist. Maybe it's an imaging person, but you need someone who has content knowledge and who can help you develop your career from a science and clinical perspective. You might want somebody who's a computational mentor, a biostatistician, informatician, epidemiologist, depending upon what you research, and someone that's going to help you evolve and learn in that area. And then I like to say you need the professional life mentor, somebody who really knows you, who cares about you, and who has like a, a broad perspective of the arc of a professional life. And that can sort of wrap it all together for you. In my own career, I have been different types of mentors to different people. I've been an interventional cardiology mentor to people. I've been a clinical trialist mentor to people. And I've been a professional life mentor to people. And I've had fellows and residents who have worked with me, mostly fellows, who I still write papers with to this day. And then I have fellows that I've, I'm very close with, that I've mentored, and I haven't written any papers with because that wasn't my role in their development. So hopefully I'm giving some insights to the question asker, which is think about what you want from that person. Do you want content? Do you want life advice? What kind of content? And then ask them, look, you're an expert in non-ST elevation acute coronary syndromes. That's my passion. It happens to be my passion. But you know, if, if that's your passion, ask them about it and say, "Hey, look, I'm really jazzed by this, and I would like to have you, you know, work in your research group, etc." You know, most of us are in academic medicine because we like to hang out with fellows and teach and do research with young people, etc. And so, just ask them, but also do your homework. Right? There are people who are really famous and really senior who like are terrible mentors because what they care about is themselves. And that's not necessarily bad. That's just who they are. 
And that's how they've been successful. But look at people like the people that work with them. Are they successful? You know, can, can you name all those people? You look at the papers that they produce. Where are they in authorship? Is the young person the first author? Who's the senior author? Ask those kind of questions. You know, what's ask other people. Hey, you know, I noticed that you worked in her lab. Was she a good mentor? And, and then think about what, but think about what you want. I do think that everybody should have a primary mentor, the person that you're going to get, you know, the, that's sort of like front and center for you. You know, for me, that person's been Rob Califf, who, again, who you, many of you know, he's, you know, he was the, I went and worked in his research group at Duke and uh, the data bank. And then he became the DCRI director where we developed the DCRI and then I've been, as I like to say, I've been with him doing research and clinical things for 30 plus years now. And now at 30 plus years into it, we're friends and colleagues, but it started out as faculty member and fellow. That is, yeah, no, that is phenomenal. And I think that this really hits home, particularly for me, or at least personally for me, I, I moved from, from the Brigham to Stanford. And I think it's, it's difficult when you go to a different program or a different institution to recapitulate a mentorship relationship that you had at a different institution, right? No, no matter how well, well intended or how, you know, how fertile the ground is at the new place that you go to, I think it's, it's harder when you're going to a new place. And, and for me, I was lucky that I was able to foster a relationship with someone that I consider very special now, who's in a completely different division than the one that I'm in. And that's Angela Rogers, who's in the pulmonary division. It, my interest is in critical care and in ARDS. And I had a long talk with her in March where my, you know, what I saw as my career arc changed uh, dramatically after I had that conversation with her. And in many ways, she kind of woke up in me a, you know, a drive to do research that I, that I, I thought that I had lost over the first couple of years of, of cardiology fellowship. And that's someone that's, that's in pulmonary division, you know? And so, you know, everyone's success or road to success is paved by the mentors and sponsors that we encounter along the way. You, you mentioned Rob Califf. Are there any other mentors or any other people, important people along the way that you've considered uh, strong mentors like, like he has? Oh, yeah. I can go all the way back, you know, into my college days and find people along the way. But I'll first put in a plug for Angela Rogers because she's awesome. Or as I like to say, she's wicked awesome. She's, uh, she is a superb physician scientist, a great doctor intensivist and a really, really talented researcher. She's also a gifted educator. As you know, she's one of the associate program directors for our residency program. She's associate program director for the Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship. She's the director of our TIP program, Translational Investigative Pathway. She's amazing. And you are lucky, Pablo, to have her and your mentorship team. That's a, that's a good team to be on. But so I have a really good friend. His picture's right over here in my office. Michael Collins, who is the chancellor of UMass Medical Center. I met Michael when I was a college senior, and he was an intern at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Boston, part of the tough system. And he'd been a Holy Cross grad five years ahead of me. And as I said, that my mother had died when I was in college, and I was a little bit of a lost soul for a while. And wise pre-med advisor, called Michael Collins and said, Hey, I got this young guy that, you know, doesn't have a brother, doesn't, you know, but I think he would benefit from spending time with you. So think about this. You've all been interns on a Saturday night while he's working in the emergency room. He says to the pre-med advisor, yeah, you know, I'm in the emergency room next week. Have him come on down and spend the night with me. And I went down and, you know, college senior and met Michael Collins. And that was in Let's see, when was that? That was 1982. And now it's, that's almost 40 years ago. And he's been an incredibly important part of my life. We do different things. He's a general internist who really went into administrative leadership. He's been a dean. He's been a hospital CEO. He's chancellor of a, of a system at UMass. So we do very different things, but we talk regularly by text, by email, by phone. I would not make an important decision without calling him. He's been really like that life mentor, and he's been a very, very, very important part of, of who I've become. And the picture that I have on my bookcase is that when he became the chancellor, not of UMass Worcester, but UMass Boston, he asked me to, to speak at it. 
And he said, oh, you know, I'm just, my, the theme of my chancellorship is going to be mentorship. And I just would like you to say a few words. And so that'd be kind of interesting. And then like a week before the event, his chief of staff called and said, so are you ready to give the keynote next week? I say, give the keynote? What, what, what are you talking about? And it was classic Michael Collins. He didn't want to freak me out. So here I was, uh, you know, <laughs> clinical researcher going to speak at an undergraduate college on the topic of mentorship and goodness gracious, no PowerPoint, just a speech. And uh, yeah, and I, it made me reflect on what was important about him. And I told some good stories of him helping me along. As I, as I think I said in the speech, I said something to the fact of he's given me you know, advice when I needed it. He's, he gave me money when I had none. He got me some interesting jobs along the way. He's just been been like an amazing person. And then there's a lot of people like that. I have a bunch of people internationally who have been great research mentors. Yeah, have lots of them. Pam Douglas, who I know is a big fan of yours, is a very, very important person in my life. And she was really the person that got me really involved in American College of Cardiology. I've been sort of involved and she got me really involved and and she's helped me along the way. And she's an amazing individual and is, and became a good friend. So one last and very important question. Yeah. We, we know you got into winemaking after moving to the Bay Area. Was that in your list of aspirations uh, before living here? Drinking wine was in my list of aspirations before living here, but not making it. No, that was... <laughs> Where did you find this stuff? That's like, so no, I was, I, I've been interested in wine for many years and how, you know, it, it had come out here to wine country. And I had a group of friends, still have these friends that we always talked about, wouldn't it be great to like buy some grapes and make a barrel of wine together? You know, people do that, right? They, and then I was, had just moved here in 2012 and my wife and I got invited to a party was a wine bottling. And we said, oh, wow, this is very California. We should go to this. And so as we're driving up to where this wine bottling was, we're in a neighborhood, like in somebody's house. Like, well, this, what's going on here? So we pull into this house and out in the driveway in the backyard is all this like wine bottling equipment. And then I realized that he has a small vineyard in the yard. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And so this, uh, guy that owned the house, I was talking to him. His name was Phil. And I said, Phil, this is amazing. How do you do this? He said, oh, you've not met Julio. And so he introduced me to, to a friend of his, Julio Darris, who is a professional vineyard manager for one of the, oh, well, you know, Pablo, he's the professional vineyard manager at Fogarty right nearby. He's been the manager there for years. And Julio has an, a sideline passion, which is that he loves to teach people how to grow grapes. And he manages about a half a dozen small private vineyards. And he loves to teach people how to make wine, et cetera. So one of the great gifts of my life here in California is getting to know Julio. And he came to our property, saw that we, we live up in the mountains, right? Not far from, across from Fogarty. And he said, oh, this would be great land for grapes. And so we we planted a lot of plants and and now what is that? We planted them in 2013 and now we get a barrel of Pinot Noir, a barrel of a Cab Merlot blend, and uh, we're just starting to get some Sauv Blanc that we planted a couple of years ago. And uh, like when Julio comes over on the weekend, my wife laughs. She says, "This is like a play date for you. You hear his truck, and I run outside and." He teaches me in the vineyard and I've learned from him how to, how to run a vineyard. And uh, I couldn't run it without him, but he always says to me, well, you know, Bob, I'm going to have to like, just be a consultant sometime. I said, oh, no, 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 no. You're going to need to keep coming out and helping me. So we, he and I work together every weekend, the different times of year for the different tasks that need to be done. And then, but my goal now is to learn how to make wine. So I'm pr I've gotten pretty good over the eight years at understanding the ebb and flow of the vineyard. And, uh, but now he's going to teach me. He makes our wine. Pablo, if you stop by my office sometime, I'll give you some. And we'll uh, just have to remind me to bring it in. And we have to get back to the live journal clubs because we have the fellows to my house for the live journal clubs. And we, uh, we drink wine from the vineyard. So 
So, you know, these questions, a huge credit to Pablo, you know, he designed them, spent a lot of time crafting these. And when we got to this question, as we were reviewing, he lamented, it's like, you know, Dr. Harrington takes a residence out, but he hasn't really taken the fellows out <laughs> for uh, wine tasting. I said, maybe after this. <laughs> yeah, no, we have the, uh, the, the welcome party for the new interns at our house. We, for them and their, their partners, their families up at the house. And I live up in the Santa Cruz mountains. So it's a fun night. We haven't done it for a few years. In fact, I was when I was on service last year, I was on with two senior residents and an intern. And the two senior residents were like, oh, you know, the, the, that that party at your house is great. And the poor intern's like, well, I didn't get to go. <laughs> but no, Pablo, I always hosted a, probably before you got here, before COVID, I, I hosted a journal club at my house for the fellows, for the cardiology fellows every year. And uh, so maybe we can do it. Maybe we can do it in the spring. Okay. I'm going to move mountains to make, make this happen now. <laughs> So, you know, I, I went to medic undergrad back at UC Davis and I was a neurodevelopmental oh. biology major because I was uh, pre-neurosurgery at the time. And, you know, I was very much focused on getting my credits in line for medical school and thought, okay, social sciences, all this stuff, I'll get the easiest classes, get them out of the way. And to date, the hardest class I've ever had in college was intro to winemaking at UC Davis. You know, and but UC Davis of- is one of the great schools to, to learn viniculture. I mean, that's where a lot of the winemakers in Sonoma and Napa come from. And yeah, yeah, I found that out after I signed up for the class, <laughs> but it was a great class. <laughs> but, you know, I, uh, as we close this, I just, again, want to reflect on what Cardiac has become. And I firmly believe that if this was exclusively the Dan and Amit show, this would have closed down after maybe five or 10 episodes. And, and really, it is people like Pablo and Christine and so many others become a part of our network and part of the soul of Cardinals that really elevate it and to the quality that it's become. You know, Pablo has contributed so much. Actually, uh, Dr. Harrington, I, I, I may have sent you an email, but he represented Cardinals at the Venezuelan Society Congress earlier this year, which was uh, such a pleasure and an honor for us to have Pablo uh, do that for us. And he's contributing to the Critical Care Series, and it's been amazing. And Christine... Yeah, you know, she she put together, I think to date, one of my favorite cases from Scripps Clinic. Uh, it was a patient with high output uh, failure and stiff left atrial syndrome. It was just incredible. And then recently was a guest host for a, a case from UC San Diego uh, related to radiation associated heart disease. But, you know, again, like it's just these kinds of inputs that really have elevated cardiac it's, it's So thank you so much, guys, for making this happen. And Dr. Harrington, you mentioned Pamela Douglas, and I just want to kind of think about how we got here for the narrative series. It, it was, I think, Dan, was it June, right? It was June that Dr. Nusheen Riza connected us with Dr. Douglas, who said, okay, well, you know, you guys are gaining some popularity. You have an audience in front of students and residents. Would you be interested in discussing diversity and inclusion? And at the time, we just read her resident survey, kind of hitting home about why our field may be less attractive for women. And it took us months to, you know, as Dan and I, as as men from, you know, probably overrepresented backgrounds within the field, it took us months to kind of just understand the issue of diversity and inclusion and why it's important and what the issues were. And we, we, we spoke with a lot of people for advice and we realized that one of the biggest barriers, probably one of the biggest barriers why we were shy to kind of, you know, start uh, talking about these things. It's just the discomfort around asking people about their differences and their backgrounds. And I think that's the biggest barrier. And and really, that's why we started having these conversations. And and we realized that, that yes, it is diversity in sex and gender and race and ethnicity and IMG status and thinking about your own story, economic mobility and diversity of thought and religion and and, and in, in every way that, that a person can be different because then they add value to the, the group. And, you know, we designed this and we thought, okay, like we have to do this right because it is an, it is a big stage and, and, and how do we make sure we have the best impact and, and learn along the way? And it was when we, you know, we created the narratives panel to help advise us. And you were just so gracious to donate your time, Dr. Harrington, and give us advice and have that, that meeting a while back. And so we just really appreciate how much you've given to the field in general, but also cardio nerds and, and given us the liberty and to, to be able to do this. And this is very much a product of, of your support. So thank you from the bottom. No, of no, no. I mean, you, you, you have accomplished something that few do, which is that you've had an idea and you've brought it through fruition, which is, that's the tough part. I always say with fellows, every fellow I've ever worked with is pretty smart and they can get it to the 20. Not every fellow can get it into the end zone. 
and uh, you guys have all collectively got it into the end zone and you've uh, you've created something really special. So good for you. And if I remember, actually, it was either Pam and or Martha Galati that suggested to me that uh, that I should chat with you. And there are two people who I have enormous respect for. So when they asked me to do something, I, if Martha or Pam asked me to do something, almost certainly I will say yes. Well, well the two of them have both been mentors, sponsors, and allies for Cardiff Nerds. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, now the two of them are pretty awesome and, <laughs> and, and would be the kind of people that, yeah, that I would absolutely do something for. So congratulations. And thank you for spending time with me. And hopefully you'll be able to make something of it. I'm going to challenge myself to uh, braid my daughter's hair and we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let, let me know. My, my daughters will tell you that I wasn't good at it, but they now that they're older, they appreciate that I used to try. And, uh, you know, I have the general concept down. And I think I, I've, I have two granddaughters now and three grandsons, which that's a whole other story about trying to figure out as a family, how do we go from a family of all women plus me to a family with all these like little boys running around? And it's been interesting, <laughs> but the granddaughters will not let me braid. They're like, no, you're not braiding your hair. We have no faith that you can do that. You know, each generation gets smarter and smarter, right? <laughs> well, let me know, Dan, how it goes. It's uh Will do. Will do. I cut my son's hair to save some money in fellowship. They almost fired me a few times, but we've been pushing through. But I'll see what my daughter said. She might be more forgiving. Daughters for a dad are always more forgiving. And yeah, very, very special relationship, daughters and dads. Hello, I'm Dr. Jamal Rana. I'm Chief of Cardiology at Kaiser Permanente East Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area. In addition, I'm Adjunct Clinical Investigator with our Division of Research. I'm currently also serving as President of California American College of Cardiology and Governor of Northern California. I'm thrilled to be invited to this forum by the amazing CardioNerds. We in California ICC have been extremely busy this year as we emerge into the new reality of living with a pandemic. I feel fortunate to support California SEC and is one of the most diverse states in the country. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is something that I deeply care about, both personally and we in California SEC. I cannot stress this enough that we are still so underrepresented in cardiology when it comes to women and underrepresented minorities such as Blacks, African Americans, Latinx, and Native Americans. You just heard from the living legend and inspiration from me, Dr. Robert Harrington, that DEI have a broad spectrum of inclusion from race, ethnicity, sex, religion, orientation, and economic backgrounds. We have a long history of promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion in California ICC. We have had prepared this diversity, equity, and inclusion toolkit for ACC chapters across USA, and we call it Make It Easy and Get It Moving. And it covered how to begin influencing the deep pipeline, starting from elementary schools to high schools, and how to work with medical students and residents, and hold events like She Looks Like a Cardiologist. This toolkit has been welcomed by chapters of ACC across the USA. More recently, Dr. Janet Y., who leads our Women in Cardiology Committee, as I call her the Catalyst, she hosted an amazing program called California ICC Catalyst for Empowerment, Women in Cardiology. We were fortunate to have Dr. Dipti Ichapuria, President of American College of Cardiology, speak about finding our strength. Then we had Dr. Rita Ng, Physician-in-Chief Kaiser Permanente, who shared her experience about leading during times of crisis. We also had amazing Dr. Carol Watson, Director UCLA Fellowship Program in Cardiovascular Disease, who spoke about fostering the future and finally, we had Dr. Christian Albert, Chair, Department of Cardiology, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, about inspiring innovation. I urge all men in cardiology to listen to this session. We have so much to learn. This session, by the way, is available on our California ACC website. Furthermore, we partnered with National ACC DEI Pipeline Program, known as the 2021 African American and Black Internal Medicine Cardiology Program. We reached out to the medical residents who were from California and invited them to be part of our own fellows and training committee and also open up various other committees to them. I think it is important 
that they get exposed to various streams of work that is happening and be inspired to learn and get involved in projects that they feel passionate about. As I mentioned earlier, I'm also a clinical researcher, and some of my research has focused on areas of health disparities. Time and again, we see worse outcomes in cardiovascular disease from heart failure to hypertension among Blacks and African Americans. To take on such a societal challenge with patients as a center of focus, we need to take head-on the underrepresentation in cardiology, from women to underrepresented minorities. We need to address bias, provide psychological safety, and continue to address structural inequities and systemic injustices. I've had the privilege of mentoring such a medical resident, and while we were discussing order of our match list, a big part of our decision was ability to serve underrepresented patients. I was so inspired by her words, where she put that as a priority versus, let's say, the biggest name program. In conclusion, I would say that we all need to be intentional about this work. We should actively seek, reach out, and support, and promote diversity in cardiology and in medicine, as this will make our professional feel better. We will be able to serve our patients better and help stem the tide of healthcare wide systemic disparities. We in California ACC are open to ideas, or if you want to get involved, check out our website, californiaacc.org. Please reach out to us at heart at caacc.org. Or I can be direct messaged at Twitter handle Jamal Rana MD. Please reach out. Thank you again for this exciting invitation and kudos to Cardio Nerds for hosting this important series. Thank <laughs> you.